I don't think you can hear those bars of music and not immediately be transported to the first time you saw Jaws. Steven Spielberg made Jaws when he was in his 20s, and it's a film that sticks with you for a reason. There is, in fact, a physics to stories that last, and the person who understands this best is my guest today, Jonathan York, author of Into the Woods and for many years a producer on BBC. All stories follow either a three or five part act. There is a inciting incident, a crisis, and then a resolution. John's book both goes into how this structure permeates everything that is a story to us, but also why. I think the power of this is once you understand the physics of story, you understand how the emotions work for you. Story can be used for good or for ill. So with that, welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. I have so many questions uh, I want to get into. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Good afternoon. And then for people who haven't read your fantastic book, Into the Woods, sure. you know, I've read a bunch of storybooks. I've got a stack of them here. Oh, wow. But yours was completely different, which is a strange magic trick because you're talking about the mechanics of story and then you actually wrote a story that you didn't want to put down, which is which is an interesting thing to pull off. So <laughs> talk a little bit, if you will, just again for the uninitiated. The, the structure that's behind the thesis that's behind your book. In simple terms, a story is a problem in search of a solution. Okay, it's just a question in which you find an answer. You know, there's a great phrase by the narratologist Todorov writing in the 1960s, and he said, "Story is a disruption." You know, which I really like that. Okay, so it's really mm. simple: a disruption that must be healed. So a protagonist has a problem; they go in search of a solution to that problem. But and, and Jaws is kind of like the classic archetype, yeah. which you mention in a lot of your talks. The huge shark. Yeah, because it's so um, it's so archetypal. Yeah, it's the beast out of there, and then you realize, like, man, Spielberg is no dummy. Oh my god, no, he's perfect. like it's based on something that actually happened. You know, Jersey Shore, 1905. This huge shark comes up the river i live near there and so and great whites have recently begun to come back here and you're like okay so it has a little little hint of truth right and then it has this huge animal yeah which is what could you get more primordial fearful hated than that everybody's yeah fascinated and terrified yeah. of things that swim under the water that eat people so it's freaking brilliant and spielberg is how old when he's doing this oh he's like 23 or something he's like absurd <laughs> But his natural instinct for not just story structure, but stories that touch people and move people is is profound. Yeah, which is what stories are supposed to do. They're supposed to move you emotionally. Yeah, people who've studied this talk about three act structure, and yeah, which is which is fine. But it's like you know, set up, confrontation, resolution. Shark eats swimmer. Hunt down the shark. Fight the shark. Order restored. You know, that's the classic. So, so that's the that's the archetypal thing, you know. But for me, like you know, I started to ask more questions about, you know, why did Shakespeare write in five acts? Right. You know, and so that was the big question that really sort of drove the big discovery in the book. And you realize two things. I mean, the second thing, which is the most important, is by studying structure, you start to realize the importance of the middle mm. of the story. The middle of the story becomes incredibly important. The mid you know, screenwriters call it the midpoint. Go back to sorry to sound obscure. Todorov talks about the disruption that's like your inciting incident the problem yes. of the story the middle of the story he he calls the the recognition of the disruption yes. which i really like yeah but, but what happens in a story is a character knows nothing at the beginning of their journey halfway through 
they receive or get a lesson that changes everything as they learn to make sense of that lesson. Yes. And that gives you the second half of the story. The Jason Bourne stories are another classic yeah. example of this. A guy wakes up at a sea. He has no idea why he's waking up in the sea. Like, what is going on? What, what could be more disruptive than that? You wake up not knowing who you are in the middle of the Mediterranean. Yeah. And then halfway through that midpoint, he's like, oh, I'm an assassin. That's what I am. Yeah. I'm an assassin. That's exactly right. And so then the second half is, is understanding the consequences of that. Yes. You know, what, halfway through, it's like it's the lesson delivered. And the second half of the story is, OK, I need to learn that lesson. So the classic illustration I always use, because it's brilliant, is the Godfather, the first one. Yes. Is you have the law-abiding war hero exactly halfway through. He kills the people who tried to kill his dad. Right. That's the lesson. A totally Shakespearean. Yeah, to complete. It's exactly the same as Macbeth. The structure is identical, as is Breaking Bad. They all fit exactly. In the British television and film industry, there's there was it's changing slightly now, but for years there was a complete refusal to study structure, just like there was in universities. It just wasn't a thing. And anybody who did was seen as slightly suspicious. And you know, <laughs> when I grew up in television, people like Sid Field or Robert McKee, who were the first people to really write about Yeah, Yeah, he's, he's one of my books here. Well, in Britain, he was the enemy. You know, he was like <laughs> Satan, you know. Uh, because, Why? Well, because the British writers, it came from a very theatrical tradition, but it's also slightly self aggrandizing tradition of I am an artist. Yes, that they're creating art. I mean, yeah, I, I do not follow a template. Right. Yeah, his structure was dismissed as template uh, and art was beyond that. And I think it's the same thing infected universities to an extent. It was seen as a, not worthy of discussion. You know, I was making hundreds of hours of television and I just get, the more I read, the more I thought, well, all these stories are the same. The underlying structure is the same. And yes. I started to read more and more about it. And the more I read, the more he said, well, of course, this is, of course. But the one thing I couldn't find out was why. Right. The thing missing from Sid Field and Robert McKee and Christopher Vogler and all those people who are well worth reading. Is the why. Yeah. Let's talk to why it's done, but I want to get to the way it can be used harmfully because I think that great manipulators do that as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, do you know, it sounds mad, but the best illustration of this is actually Elizabeth Holmes and yes. the Theranos story. Yes. You know, and particularly the first half, you know, a 23-year-old girl who drops out of Yale. Stanford. Oh, Stanford, forgive me. Of course it was, yeah. Uh, and um, so being an Englishman here, so forgive me. You know, <laughs> becomes in five, six, seven years a billionaire, on the paper billionaire. How did she do that? How did she do that? How did she bypass all due diligence to get the most powerful people in the country on her side and convince people who really should have known better and seen through it that she was who she said she was. And the answer to that is simply she had a fantastic story and everything she did absolutely embodied the perfect story. So you have the empathetic protagonist, you know, right. young girl, pretty, that significant, yes. fighting against the odds. There's a Cinderella Harry Potter element there and an antagonist which is death yes you know she says you know like you know i i want to make sure that people you love don't die too soon i mean that's so emotive right and that gives you this extraordinary story shape is it's jaws but with the most empathetic protagonist you know we're going to defeat death how would you not want to root for that with this amazing person who is 
you know, just a compelling and fascinating character. And that story gets you know, everyone from Henry Kissinger to George Schultz to go, yeah, okay, right. Murdoch, here's a hundred million. Without checking, yes. you know, that storytelling. Yes. It's a you know, storytelling is got nothing to do with facts, it's to do with emotion. Yeah. You know, and great storytelling bypasses facts completely and relies completely on emotional appeal. You can use that badly as she did to do great harm as she did, but you can also do it to do great good. I spent a lot of my career in Russia and China, and I, I know that people are, you know, for, for understandable reasons, very uncomfortable with both those people. But if you watch the state-run TV in both those places, like Putin understands media. Oh, yeah, brilliant. And even though the intellectuals loathe him, the vast majority of the people see these photo shoots he's done and things like that, and they are they're kind of brilliant in the way he stages them in terms of rallying people in a bunch of things, but it's done for really Machiavellian yeah. yucky reasons. Absolutely. I mean, they say, I don't think it's ever been proved, but yeah, they say when you know, Putin was first elected, there's that terrorist attack in Moscow. Yeah, the building's getting blown up. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's a great suspicion about whether that was actually staged because- That's exactly right. There's the enemy you need. Right. You need the shark. It's brilliant. And that is the Russian fear. You can read about that in Tolstoy. Those fears are that that's the shark. That's the shark. Yeah. I think that's well said. <laughs> so are there politicians that can be both good and in terms of giving what's needed, particularly around this rise in populism and coherent? Storytelling is fundamental to any successful politician, isn't it? Is of that course. absolutely right? And you know, the you know, I mean, the example I use, and forgive an Englishman talking about American politics again, was the 2016 election. You know, uh, make America great again is is a fantastic story. Drain the swamp. Yes. If I said to you, write a story in three words, it's very hard to come up with something better than drain the swamp because you can infer the protagonist, you can infer the antagonist. Yes. You're absolutely who wouldn't want to drain the swamp? It's brilliant. And against yes. that, you know, Hillary's catchphrase was uh, stronger together. That's not a story. Yes. That's not a story. There's no verb. Right. It's like it's ridiculous. Trump is is Hollywood blockbuster. Hillary Clinton is art house movie. It, it's incompetent, really. You know, I've heard. And you're gonna lose. You're gonna lose. Of course, you're gonna lose because the winner is always the one who tells the best story. everybody who doesn't know you like who's mom and dad how do you get interested to story and all that type of stuff okay well my 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 parents were doctors actually my mom was a gynecologist and my father was a psychoanalyst mm -hmm. but they were i don't know how much the term means with you paul but they were they were from working class background so they were born during the war before the war and they were that generation that came of age just as britain was changing they were taking advantage of massive investment in, mm -hmm. in fulfilling the potential of a population that before the war had largely been neglected. And so they were real benefits of this kind of like post-war consensus mm -hmm. of like, you know, actually everyone has potential, Yes, you know, let's educate everybody, which is an amazing time in British history. And so they grew up being taught in a way that the people from their backgrounds, largely factory laborers had never been taught before. Mm. Largely, that was a very literary, it's kind of like loads of poetry, loads of books, mm -hmm. loads of history, like, you know, an extraordinary, it was, it was like making the British mm -hmm. population literate, which really before the war, a vast 
chunk of them were. And so when I was born, which was in the 60s, I just grew up in a, in a, in a house surrounded by books and a father, even though they were, they were medical, so technically they were scientists, they just talked about art uh-huh. all the time and books. So it's yeah, very, very decadent in its own way, but lovely. It never occurred to me that you wouldn't want to read a book. And then theatre, you know, my dad had loads of plays. You know, he, he'd been quite radical in his day and he'd um, become obsessed with theatrical avant-garde. So there was a lot of Samuel Beckett. You know, there was a lot of Jean Ennui. There was a lot of, um, you know, modernist literature as well. He was obsessed with Joyce, for example, you know. So it's great. I mean, I didn't get it then. You know, I'm just more interested in Paddington Bear. But what extraordinary parents in a way. I mean, to be that grounded in, if you will, two different traditions, both the scientific tradition and everything that would have gone away with that, but then also being deeply into Joyce. I know a bunch of physicians in the United States, and I can't think of a single one. If you're listening and I'm wrong, you help me go (laughs) right in and tell me that I'm wrong who really knows Joyce well. So that right. that is a, quite a special household to grow up in. Yeah. So you had these two things, these two levers, if you could have. There was a scientific thing that you yeah. could have gone down, and there was a storytelling thing, and you chose storytelling. Yeah. Take us in a little bit like what was behind that. Was it just intuitive, or was there something? Well, you know what? I applied to be a doctor. <laughs> I got rejected, <laughs> Like is the is the, is the simple answer. Is, is like, you I you was... and I both. <laughs> it's a rite of passage, isn't it? You know, I, I think that was the right decision i wasn't particularly scientific right you know i was just doing it because my parents had done it and it seemed like a fascinating life you know i i got involved in theater very young which was clearly an offshoot of my father's interest right you know and i read all those plays there and i read beckett very young and i found i loved waiting for Godot. i thought wow this is great it's mad i don't get it but it's great <laughs> And were mom and dad like, oh, now you're fulfilling the dreams that we thought about going down, but we were too practical or were yeah, they? Yeah, in, in a way, I think that's right. And I think my dad really encouraged me that. Plus also, yeah, there was that weird crossover between Samuel Beckett and Buster Keaton. You know, there's a kind of, and so my dad was, obs- again, he, he was born in 1923. So he'd grown up with silent films. You know, sound only arrived yeah. just after he was born. So he made me watch all those films. You know, I think the first film he made me watch was Citizen Kane. But after uh-huh. that, he took me through Keaton and Chaplin and Harold Lloyd. So he was obsessed with educating me in in narrative, really. I don't think he saw it like that. But I think I was sort of, yeah, I think you know, he had it as a hobby. And he was also slightly jealous, I think, in later years, in the nicest possible way, that I was doing that. Because deep down, he, he loved that stuff. And I think he, he he loved medicine as well. But, you know, that was his job. Well, also, growing up the time he grew up in, I mean, imagining the Blitz and all this type of stuff to go through that, it probably seemed to take a... If you had the mental facilities for both your parents to get a job in medicine, it probably seemed like less of a financial career risk than trying to go down the storytelling path. Oh, Yeah. I think absolutely. And they felt, particularly with the backgrounds they came from, that you know, they were looking for some kind of financial security because they'd come out of a world that hadn't been secure. And yeah, you don't go into the arts for financial security. And was anybody teaching a course when you were in college like the one that you've ended up creating effectively? Or was it sort of in the background? Well, no, you see, this this was the fascinating thing. You see, and one of the reasons I wrote the book is, is, is structure wasn't mentioned at all. It just wasn't a subject in literature right. whatsoever. And there was nothing really written about it whatsoever. I mean, you talk about, you know, the structure of this book is, is, is thematic, blah, that relates to the subject of a particular book. But the idea 
you know, that you would talk about structure generally was, was you, you just didn't do it. That wasn't what literature was about. Literature was about the stuff of life and the mind. Right. You know, it was years later, I'm jumping ahead. You know, I, it was I rang up my university tutor when I was trying to find out where five act structure came from. Uh-huh. And she said, I don't know. Nobody knew. And then you figured you might be on to something. <laughs> yeah, nobody knew. And actually, she was the key to it because she went and found the one book written about it that changed everything that had been written by an American in 1946. It was Thomas Baldwin, and it was the book was called simply Shakespeare's Five Act Structure. And he'd written this book in which he'd done a synopsis of every play he could find from the beginning of recorded time to Shakespeare. And as he's writing it, he starts to see a pattern in the structure. Let's talk about the whys. In the whys, you go through why do we have this structure that's kind of, to some degree, immutable. And you go through these things, the societal reason, the rehearsal reason, the healing reason, the information. There's sort of a bunch of really core things that are happening that sort of has to do with, if I was sort of think about distilling these things, in a way to the propagation of the tribe. Yes. What does the propagation of the tribe have to do with? Well, sometimes it literally has to do with propagation. Mm. That's a love story. Sometimes it has to do with conveying terrible things that have happened in the past, like a tsunami or something like that, that you have to smallpox or that you have to be aware of. Something it has to do with healing the times we've gotten terribly off course. And that these are all the sort of things that are collectively one tribe. It's like you and I are getting older. It's like we're sharing a set of stories for the younger generation. And that that's the that's it. It's sort of like that's the DNA. Yeah, it's I mean, it's stories that you know, the importance of the tribe is absolutely fundamental. And it's again, it's like why every country has a foundation narrative. Origin myth. Yeah. Yes. You know, and you know, I mean it's fascinating in the States now. And again, I'm looking at this from England, you know, with the, the 1619 project, you know, you're arguing about the foundation narrative again, and it's incredibly yes emotive and as it is here and here i mean brexit is is a part of that for some reason after 100 years of paying it no attention whatever everyone's now arguing about the british empire yes yeah and churchill churchill is suddenly evil again to a substantial minority of, of the british people they're arguing about the narrative which shows how insecure we all currently are at the moment because these narratives which were always false Yes, are still incredibly important because sense of identity is so important to the health of a tribe, a secure identity. That's just like an, an individual. I know you spoke in some, and it's such an interesting question about why it's so immutable. You describe some of some of your other conversations about jazz. Yeah. Like jazz is a blending of this type of thing. So you require the structure, but also we crave for it to be bent and blended a little bit. Mm. And the degree to which that is tolerable versus it not being tolerable. Yeah. I mean, I think so so fundamentally two things. The first thing is, okay, so what is story structure? Story structure is really the dramatization of the process of learning. That's really where story structure comes from. So what is a story? A story is a unit of knowledge weaponized for maximum viral transmission, mm. which is why that tribal thing is so important in all, all the elements you talk about. Mm-hmm. So that's the first point. That gives you a very clear shape. If you think about it, so people will listen to this podcast. They'll come to this podcast they'll go, okay, he might be interesting. I'll listen to it, and then I'll go away and I'll think about it, and I'll come to a conclusion. Uh, and that maybe I hate him, mm. or all oh, that's interesting. That 
is story structure. It parallels exactly the shape of story structure. Is you encounter something new, you mm. prod it and you stress test it and you decide whether you're going to embrace it or not. Yeah. So that's the classic shape. Now, out of that, the classic shape is like, you know, is the most commercial, the most powerful. That's why the Elizabeth Home story is an incredibly classic narrative shape. But, you know, a lot of people come in as well. I don't want to be classic narrative. Oh, you know, I want nuance. I, I, you know, I want gray areas. Right. So actually, what if I subvert the shape? And, you know, and the analogy I use, as you said, is jazz, which is like, you know, if you're John Coltrane, you'll come along and go, well, hang on, I'm not going to resolve to the dominant. I'm going to go to a minor sixth. And that feels odd. Right. But somehow beautiful. But uh, you're automatically narrowing your audience, though. Yeah. In other words, jazz has that beauty to it, but it's also more rarefied. Oh, absolutely. Which is why always, you know, the most successful stories are the most archetypal and most commercial and i.e. harry potter yeah harry potter is is perfect the fascinating thing about a harry potter is it does follow that mm. but i remember reading that to my kids it was just a good fun story like it did it it surprised in ways you did not and so much of you know because of pandemic my wife and i've watched a ton of this netflix stuff an enormous amount of it i just like i can't like the minute mm -hmm. it is predictable it's like they're probably following an archetype but the minute it's predictable, I'm like, I'm done. Uh -huh. Why is it so difficult to have stuff that is both archetypal, has mass appeal, but is also not hackneyed? In the 1960s, the director general of the BBC said, your aim is to be popular and good. Yes, which is super hard. Super hard, because most people define popular with bad and lowest common denominator, yeah. you know, particularly if you're you know, part of that kind of liberal elite. And there's a truth to that because a lot of stuff is very gen generic and very formulaic. You know, the thing about Harry Potter is actually it's full of love and it's written by somebody who's actually sort of telling their own life story in a way. She is Harry yes. to Sten, you know, and she fed and she's not probably not even aware of the structure she's following. She's not thinking about that because, you know, we tell stories in that shape, whether we like it or not. You know, structuring, right. you know, some of the very best British writers have never studied structure in their life, but they write perfect structure. Yes. And, and I think, you know, that's the way to do it. You know, you know, like the best writing is always when you stick a pen in your heart and you bleed all over the page. So where's the room for ambiguity then? Well, the room for ambiguity lies in the slightly less commercial. And that's like an iron law. I think pretty much. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of non-commercial or literary books can do incredibly well but they won't do as well as marvel so it's great but you know you can subvert story structure and you go all the way into art house with you know everything from you know the films of hanukkah to tarkovsky to last year in marion bad and they get more and more absurd and and smash up the archetype but all that confirms is the archetype exists because you can't have dissonance without an innate knowledge of melody yes yeah let's talk about those those disruptions i think this is really interesting because this could sound a little bit lateral to this, but it's basically as the mediums we use shift, how much does the story shift or not? You know, I was in a hedge fund. I wasn't really allowed to be on social media. So <laughs> now I am, but I've like almost like a teenager trying to figure out how it works. It has its own rules. 
how does the shift in the technology of the way we transmit stories change their shape, if at all? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And the best illustration I can give to that is when I went on that journey to discover why five-act structure existed, you know, the conclusion you inevitably come to is, so, I mean, it's a combination of things coming together, but fundamentally it's like, you know, the play's got longer. And so how, how do you get people to watch that, particularly when they're standing up in the open air and they're drinking a lot? Yeah. Okay, you're the producer, you want people to watch it. You need to have a break. Yeah, the structure of a play is directly related to the capacity of the human bladder, uh-huh. you know. Uh, and then what you see in Shakespeare, particularly in the last plays, is the structure becomes more standardised because they've moved inside because they developed the technology to light the plays inside. You know, and each act becomes the length of a candle. You know, and at the end of every act, they lower the chandelier, stick new candles in and light them. So that's a classic illustration of structure changing as technology develops. And I think you know, the, the, the point mm-hmm. is really that the underlying shape of stories, which is really three acts, mm-hmm. all stories have that, mm-hmm. is just adapted to the medium and technology of the day, the means of consumption. How do you think it applies to social media then? Well, in social media, you're still a protagonist fighting an antagonist, you know, aren't you? So, you know, if you choose, um, uh, you know, who do you follow? You follow people at some level you identify emotionally with who want to defeat an enemy you want to defeat. So you go on that battle with them. After reading your book, yeah. I was watching something with my wife and I go, here it comes. Here's the crisis. <laughs> and she goes, she said, quiet. <laughs> yeah. She goes, I just want to enjoy it. Yeah. No analysis. Yeah. Does it make it less fun once you understand the stuff? Like go back to your roots of discovering, reading it and things like that. It's like now you have this DNA plan. You see it everywhere. Well, I, I, your wife is absolutely right. <laughs> you know, I got ma- that's why I got married quite late in life. Because, you know, I spent formative years of my life in a cinema with a stopwatch timing everything no way yeah yeah, i was working it out you know i was spent years working literally how it fit together yeah Yeah, and it was very geeky and like you know and rather solitary of you and 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 not particularly healthy and now now i you know i can switch off easily yeah and it's quite amusing to go oh of course that was the midpoint or whatever but yeah the test for me of a good story or a good film is if i stop thinking about that stuff well, thank you so much. This was, uh, this was a really fun conversation. Oh, bless you. Thank you, Ron. Thoroughly enjoyed talking about it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack and become a paid subscriber. That helps support the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.